Turn to John chapter 19 where Jesus makes this statement. We're going to begin reading in verse 28. And, and just a heads up, if you grew up uh, in church, maybe in a Baptist church, and you did sword drills, uh, the first half of this uh, sermon may feel like that. If you're not from a church background, you said, what did he say? Do they have swords at church? Uh, no, but maybe we should. No, I'm just kidding. Um, so, Scripture's called the Bible the sword of the Spirit, and so uh, we would have sword drills where your teacher would call out a random verse and then you would race to it, and then, now where I grew up, we would say amen when you got there. That's how you knew. So you don't have to do that today, although you can, that might be a more raucous environment. Um, but uh, it's going to feel a little like that because we're going to cover a few things very quickly and then begin to kind of enumerate the things that were finished that moment when Jesus cried out, it is finished, and died. So it's going to be a bit of a, a bit of ping pong as we kind of bounce through some text trying to understand uh, what exactly Jesus meant and what the significance is of it being finished. So let's go to John chapter 19. We'll begin in verse 28. Later, knowing that all was now completed... And so that Scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. And a jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it and put the sponge on a stalk of hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When He had received the drink, Jesus says, it is finished. With that, He bowed His head and gave up His spirit. So the last words recorded of Jesus in the Gospel of John is this simple phrase, it is is finished, but the Scriptures tell us that, that knowing that, that Scripture had been fulfilled and that everything had been completed, Jesus goes into this phrase to proclaim it is finished. And so Jesus tells us a few things. He tells us the, the most simple reading is that His life is finished. That He's going to die and that He's keenly aware of that. And this is in fact the moment that He will breathe His last. We also see that, that His earthly ministry and what He was called by God to do here on earth is finished. And we also get a glimpse here that the words of the prophets of what Messiah would do had been completed. And so they were finished as well. I want us to begin with this thought that it's the end of His ministry here on earth. And that, that God the Father had sent Him with a particular task to accomplish some particular things. And Jesus says at this moment, it is finished. Begin in John chapter 17 where Jesus lays out some of the specifics of His ministry and why His Father had sent Him. Now, this is Jesus praying not long before He's apprehended. And in verses 1-5, to in, in Jesus' prayer, we begin to see some things about why God the Father had sent Jesus to the world. So after Jesus said this, He looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the time has come. Glorify Your Son, that Your Son may glorify You. For you granted authority over all people that he might give eternal life to those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. So Jesus th says this. He says, look, what you've sent me to do, I have accomplished. And now as I'm going to die and return to you, Return to me the glory that I had before I left heaven and took on the humility of being a man. But more than that, we find that built into Jesus' purpose for coming, the overarching purpose is to glorify His Father. Now, He's going to tell us the means by which He will glorify Him is saving. So He says, look, I have come to glorify you and I have glorified you by giving eternal life. And what is eternal life? That they might know you, that they might be 
drawn to you in relationship. Later in the Scriptures, we'll call that reconciliation, that those who were far from God would be brought near. And Jesus says, look, I've completed that task. I came to glorify you, Father, through offering salvation to men and women who were distant. In Luke 19, Jesus would tell us that He came to seek and to save the lost. And most of us are familiar with John 3.16, where it says that, For God so loved the world, He gave His only Son, that whoever believed in Him would not perish but have eternal life. But the the Scripture continues past there. He says that God didn't send His Son into the world to, to judge it or to condemn it, but to save it. Now this is significant theologically, because God didn't need to intervene at all in order to condemn. For us to all walk gladly on our way to destruction requires no intervention on God's part. Because in our sinful uh, nature, we tend to choose sin over and over again, and our path of our own choosing is destruction. So for God to redeem required intervention. But for God to condemn would have taken no effort. And so the Scriptures tell us that He sent His only Son into the world not to condemn it, but to save it, to redeem it. If you go to Romans chapter 5, you'll see how this plays out. Romans chapter 5, we'll begin in verse 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men, because all men sinned. For before the law was given, sin was in the world, but sin was not taken into account when there was no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking the command as Adam did, who was the pattern of the one to come. Now skip down with me to verse 18. Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for men, for all men, so was the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. Now there's a lot going on there, but what, what you see is that because of, of sin of Adam and the fall that took place from there, all men, all women are under condemnation and death because sin entered into the world and we are now sinners by nature and choice. And death is what follows. And so through that act of one man, condemnation came. But through the act of another, of Jesus, who was perfectly obedient, even to death on a cross, he says we're justified or declared not guilty before God. God didn't need to do anything, take any action. The Son of God did not need to come into the world for death to reign. It was already reigning. But for redemption and forgiveness to occur, the Son of God had to come and fulfill his ministry and suffer and die. And so when Jesus is on the cross, he says, look, I had this ministry to glorify my Father through salvation, and it is finished. The work that he was called to do had been completed. And as we read through, if you did the, the, the 50 reasons that Jesus came to die, if you followed that as a devotion, you found that, that John Piper in that book argues at least 50 reasons that Christ came to die. And really when you step back from that, they're reasons, but they're also 50 things that Jesus accomplished for us. 50 things that on the cross, when He bore the weight of our sin, that He secured for us that we could not secure for ourselves. And what I'd like to do as we go through today is to look at a few things that were finished when Jesus died on the cross. A few things that He completed for us as He died. The first is the idea of atonement, or to absorb the wrath of God. That God, as a righteous and just King of the universe, has anger for sin. 
and that sin deserves punishment equal and fitting to the crime. And since we have all sinned against an infinitely good and glorious God, the requisite punishment would then be some infinite punishment. And so God was righteously angry and wrathful over sin because we had confronted His righteousness. But Jesus came so that that wrath would not be poured out on us. If you look to Romans chapter 3 with me, we'll start in verse 23. Excuse me, verse 25. It said, God presented Him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in His blood. He did this to demonstrate His justice because in His forbearance He had left sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did this to demonstrate His justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies to those who have faith in Jesus. So it says God is just and there is sin, so sin must be punished. But this is the plan that God presented Jesus as an atoning sacrifice. That God presented Jesus to take upon Himself the punishment for the sins of humanity. So that when you and I sin, that that was laid upon Jesus and He took the punishment for it. We have access to forgiveness through Jesus by faith. So Romans 3 says, so that, so that there was an atonement made that God's wrath and anger for sin was satisfied when Christ took it upon Himself. And so Christ made atonement. He absorbed God's wrath for sin. We've said this before, but throughout the church history, the way that, that this has been described is kind of a divine dilemma that God desired to save sinful men and women but they owed a debt because of their sin that they could not pay. It was a debt that only man should pay, but it was so great that only God could. And so God sends His Son, Jesus, both God and man, so that man pays the penalty for man's sin, but God is capable of paying. And so He comes and He absorbs God's wrath. For our sin. So that now when, when, when we relate to God, even when we stumble, even when we fall, God's hand is not wrathful upon those who believe in Jesus because there is no wrath of God for those who are saved who believe in Christ. We might receive judgment or discipline as sons. That's what Hebrews would tell us, that, that God is like a father and He loves His children. So He disciplines them. He corrects them. And the goal is to draw them back. But we are not under His wrath. And so when you stumble, when you fall, recognize that God is still a loving Father there to pick you up, not an angry judge there to destroy you. And Jesus did that. Jesus accomplished that for us. And at that moment that Jesus says, it is finished, this work of absorbing the wrath of God for sin is finished. It's done. There's none left. It's done. He also cleanses us. The Scriptures paint this picture of us in our sinful humanity as being filthy. Even our best attempts to be righteous, God says, are like filthy rags. And so what Jesus does on the cross and through His blood is to cleanse us. The, the theological term is expiation. And it paints this picture of a shower just rushing over you. And we, we hear this in Christian songs, even hymns we grew up with, talking about being plunged to victory beneath the cleansing flood. That the blood of Jesus cleanses us and washes us new. I want you to look with me at 1 John chapter 1, verse 7. 
It says, if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, purifies us from all sin. So we're purified, cleansed. That which is tainted is removed. The, The rubble, the trash is taken away. And the blood of Jesus purifies us from sin. If you turn with me also to Revelation Chapter 1, it says, And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to Him who loves us and has freed us from our sin by His blood. That on the cross, as the blood of Jesus was poured out, we were cleansed. That the sin was removed from us. That what was once soiled and filthy is now shining and spotless. Now, I again want to point out who does this cleansing. Do we kind of polish things up and then God says, okay, you're, you're clean before me? Or is it something different entirely? The Scriptures would teach us that the blood of Jesus and His work on the cross and our response in faith cleanses us. Not us, not our self-efforts, not our desires to be better, not all of our good New Year's resolutions, but Jesus and His work cleanses us from unrighteousness, cleanses us from sin. So that no longer are we in offense before a righteous and holy God, but He looks at us through the lens of the blood of Christ and sees us as spotless and pure. So we're cleansed of our sin because of Jesus and what He accomplished there. Romans chapter 5 would tell us that we're justified or declared not guilty. That while we were sinners, God looks upon us through the sacrifice of Jesus and says, not guilty. Turn with me to Romans chapter 5. We get in verse 6. You see, at just the right time, when you were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to. But God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Look at verse 9. Since now we have been justified by His blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through Him? You know, we've been justified. We've been declared not guilty by God for our sin through the blood of Jesus. The proclamation of us being not guilty is not because we groveled before God. It's not because we paid Him back. It's not because we looked at our sin debt and we developed an amortization schedule and put together a 30-year note to pay it back. And we did enough good stuff to offset the bad stuff and we tipped the scale of cosmic karma in our favor and God said not guilty. That doesn't work before a holy God who looks at sin and must judge it. We know that doesn't work. I don't understand why when we think of our relationship to God that, that people walk around thinking, if my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds, I'm in. I mean, if I murder five people, but I do something really nice for 20, do I get off the hook for you know, the mass murders? Absolutely not. We don't turn a blind eye to one breaking of the law because you did something nice a different day. We know that's not how justice works, but for some reason, when we come before God, we think that that kind of system is legit. That, well, you know, I did some really bad stuff, but I did some really good stuff too, so 
don't even think about that. We'll just, we'll just sweep that under the rug. And God is just, and that can't happen. I mean, how many of us would, would think it's acceptable if someone walked into a courtroom ha- having killed an entire family and said, you know, but I, I, I gave to Habitat for Humanity. And the judge goes, well, not guilty. He said he's sorry. None of us would think that's a righteous judge. None of us would respect him. We, we would think he's corrupt. And so God has to deal with sin, and the, the way He chose to do it, because He loves and desired to save, was for God's Son, Jesus, to take upon Himself the righteous judgment. And so that now He looks at us and He says, the debt is paid. You are not guilty. So we're justified. We're declared not guilty before God. And this is one that amazes me. That when Jesus dies on the cross, He accomplishes something else in our relationship to God where not only are we acceptable, but we're beloved sons and daughters. It's not just you're not guilty. Sometimes we get this depiction of God in heaven like, like really hoping that we don't turn to Jesus because you know, he, might want to save, he might save us, but He doesn't really like us. The Scriptures say, no, He he accepts us, and we can draw near to Him with with confidence through the blood of Christ. Look with me to Ephesians chapter 3. We're going to start at verse 10. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. According to His eternal purpose, which He accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, in Him and through faith in Him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you therefore not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. Look at what he says. He says, through Jesus and what He accomplished, we can approach God with joy, with freedom and confidence. Not with fear that we would a judge who just might condemn us at any moment, but with confidence as we would approach a father. We approach him with confidence and freedom. In Hebrews chapter 4, we drive this point home again, if you want to turn there with me. In Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, it says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find help in our time of trouble. You see this? Jesus, as our high priest, the one who intermediates between us and God the Father, the one who stands in there, who paid the debt for us, and he, he is there. And because of what He has done, we can go before the throne of God with confidence, knowing that He will be merciful. How many times do we approach the throne of God with something other than confidence? Something other than knowing that He will hear our prayer, knowing that He will respond, knowing that because of Jesus' death on the cross, He loves us. I mean, if you ever needed proof that God loves you tremendously, look at the cross. That God's own son died. I'm sorry, I, I love all of you. I'm not putting any of my kids up for you. And God looks at us and he says, to express love to them, to show them what love is, I will send my only son to die for them. Didn't even spare his own son. 
So if you ever needed something that would give you confidence as you approach God, know that, that He loves you with that immensity, not because you're special, but because He's loving. And God's love for you isn't predicated upon your behavior and performance. It's predicated upon His love. And so He is good and He does change and He's constantly the same. So we can always approach Him with confidence knowing we will receive mercy regardless of our sin and failings. We may also receive discipline which is a function of God's mercy to turn us. But when we come to Him, when we seek Him, He is merciful. Another one that He did is that He ended the sacrificial system. That before the death of Jesus... There were constant sacrifices being made at the temple. And you can read Leviticus, the the whole thing lines out sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. And if you sin in this way, you do this sacrifice. And every year the priest is going to do this sacrifice to cover the atonement of the people. And if you realize after the fact that you've sinned in this way, then you can do this sacrifice. And it's just this litany of sacrifice options. And I don't know about you, but I have this distinct feeling that if I lived then, like, I would, I would do a sacrifice for my sin and I would probably walk out of the temple and someone would get in my way and I would sin. And then I would need to go buy another sheep or lamb and I'd need to go back in. I don't think I'd ever get like a block from the temple and I'd be broke. And all we do is just killing livestock all day because of my sin. And you guys probably relate to that because honestly, some of y'all are, 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 are saluting people leaving the parking lot sometimes. Easy now. Turn right back around. Sacrifice something else. That would be the constant trend of my life is I'd take about 15 steps from the temple, sin in some way, and go, yeah, I'd better go handle this. So Jesus puts an end to that. I want to walk through a few scriptures and maybe make sense of that. In Hebrews 9.22, it tells us there is no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. That the, the judgment of sin. The consequence of sin is death. And so death and the lifeblood are very much connected. And so God establishes a system that for sin to be dealt with, blood must be shed. Life must be taken. Now the sacrificial system was God's mercy to the Israelites. It never truly covered their sin. It was much like paying on a credit card. They were covered. They had the benefits of walking in God's grace, but the sin wasn't ultimately and finally dealt with until Jesus comes and makes an end to sacrifice. So the law requires the shedding of blood, but the blood of bulls and goats was was very inefficient and ineffective at ultimately dealing with sin. Go with me to Hebrews chapter 10. When we get in verse 1, it says, The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, they would have stopped being offered. For the worshipers would have been cleansed once and for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Skip over to verse 11 with me. It says, Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties again and again, and he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sin." But when the priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. 
Since that time, He waits for His enemies to be made His footstool because by one sacrifice, He has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Look at this. He says that, look, the sacrificial system pointed to what was coming with Jesus, that the final ending and complete sacrifice for sin would be paid. He says these priests do these things all the time, constantly, because they don't work, because they don't actually cleanse from sin. And so he says when Jesus, our high priest, when he makes this final sacrifice of himself, he goes to be with the Father, and what does he do? He sits down because it is finished. The work is completed. There is no need for additional sacrifice because the wrath of God for sin was poured out in its entirety on Jesus. And the debt was paid and cleansing has been made available. Let me give you one more. I went to cut one out. When Jesus said it is finished, one of the things that was finished was God's plan to bring joy and salvation, not just to middle class white America, but to the nations. Look at Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. As the saints cry out to God, they sing a new song in verse 9. This is what it says they sang. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe, language, people, and nation. And so at the cross, when Jesus says it is finished, His blood poured out purchases joy, salvation, and worship for the nations. Listen to this. Every tribe, language, tongue, every ethnicity, people group on the planet, God has desired to redeem men from them. So that heaven will be this amazing experience of men and women from every background praising God. That the God of all creation will be worshipped by the men and women of all creation. And so in in this whole thing is that the gospel is to spread out to everyone because God has this amazing heart to redeem men and women from every tongue and tribe and people group. That's why it's a significant element of what we do here as a church because it rightly reflects the heart of God and His desire for the nations. And so the work necessary for that to happen was completed. The heavy lifting is done. And Jesus says it is finished. I want to talk about that phrase a little bit to see what we mean when we say it is finished. These are the things that Jesus accomplished for us. Certainly there's more. We could preach for hours about that and not hit the tip of the iceberg. But when Jesus on the cross dying cries out, it is finished, he uses this word, the root is teleo, which means not only it is finished, uh, some would say accomplished or completed. That What I set out to do, I finished. It's not just I survived the task and that's over. We have that sometimes. At the end of work we say, oh, it's done. Not that, not surviving, not getting through it, but, but completing, but accomplishing. That's why some translations say it is accomplished. Jesus completes the task. This is a phrase we would use actually sometime as we came out of like a Greek exam. We would say in this form of it, to telestai, it is finished. I never have to go back into Greek 102 again. 
You walk through, a, you do a, a 10K, and you might say, it is finished, whoo! You climb Mount Everest, it is finished, we completed the task, it's done. The amazing thing about this that we don't really get in English when he says it is finished is it's not just straight up past tense. See, in English we don't have like 15 different tenses, we kind of have three, right? And we have a few variations, but we have present, past, and, and future. I don't even remember how many there are in Greek. But, but this is one that's interesting. This is called the perfect tense. And so when Jesus says it is finished, he doesn't say simply it is finished. The perfect tense is an event that occurs in the past and has continuing ongoing effects into the future. So when Jesus says it is finished, he says it is finished now. It will be finished tomorrow. It will be finished the next day. It will be finished the day after that. 2,000 years from now, it will still be finished. For all eternity, it will still be finished. It's perfectly, entirely completed. Now, this is really significant, and we have to camp here, because a lot of us will read those lists of all these things that Jesus did for us, and we'll say, whoo! And then as we stumble in life, or we face trials, we'll begin to backtrack off that and doubt whether or not it's actually done. Whether or not when I approach the throne of God, I can have confidence believing that He will be merciful to me. Because to be honest, I, I begin to sin and I begin to look at myself and say, if God wanted to, He could judge me harshly. But God has promised not to. And God's promise not to be harsh but to be merciful is not based upon whether or not our stumble. It's based upon whether or not Jesus' blood was sufficient and He was telling the truth when He says it is finished. And so we say it's finished and we believe that. But as struggle comes, as difficulty happens, we begin to kind of second-guess that and say, is there more I need to do? The Scriptures have cleansed us from sin and the guilt of it and the shame that comes with it. But what do we do? We carry around with us that guilt and shame for sins that Jesus has cleansed us from. And they keep us from having relationships with other people that we ought to because we feel somewhat inferior and we know that, that maybe if they understand some of my past, maybe if they hear what God has brought me through, they'll judge me and they'll think less of me. And so we don't even give people an opportunity to love us as Christ would because we've got this lie built into our head that says maybe it's not finished, maybe I'm not cleansed, maybe I'm filthy, and maybe I'm unlovely. And Jesus says, it's finished. You're cleansed, set free, not guilty, entirely loved. And so we need to step back in those moments and remind ourselves, not that we're good enough, but that Jesus was great enough. That His death on the cross, that the shedding of His blood is what cleanses us. Not us or other people's perception of us. Some of us want to not carry that own guilt and shame, but we want to lay it on other people as if they should carry a burden that we couldn't. And so the cross rejects our legalism because the work is done. It's finished. The power of sin and death over our lives is finished. I don't know what you wrestle with. I'm suspecting we all struggle with sin. But I want you to know that its power, its hold on you, because of the blood of Jesus, is finished. Think about it. Name it. It's finished. It was finished. It is. It will always be finished. It's done. It's entirely completed. It's eternally completed. It's continually completed. It's constantly completed. 
perfectly, unchangeably, unquestionably finished. I don't know how to get that through because some of you guys I know are going to walk out of here and not understand this and you're going to turn around and you're going to begin to judge yourself based on the things of this world even though the Scripture says we don't judge men according to that anymore. But with all of my heart, if there's one thing you could walk away today from, was that all of these things that Jesus has accomplished, the forgiveness, the reconciliation to God, being drawn near to Him, being cleansed, being, having confidence before His throne, is to know that none of those have to do with you but with Jesus, and that your response is to trust Him. To trust Him for salvation, believing that He died on the cross for your sins and rose again, and to trust Him every day from there as you relate to God. Knowing that you will grow in the faith because the blood of Jesus cleanses you. Knowing that you can pray to God and receive mercy because the blood of Jesus has brought you near to Him. And that nothing can change that. Nothing. I want us to pray, and then we're going to have some time to worship. And I would challenge you as we sing, if you need to sit and you need to just reflect and meditate, that, that you would do that, and you would say, God, um, where am I doubting the completed work of Jesus? Where do I stumble and begin to doubt these promises and begin to think that, that some way I have to earn or pay back your affection? Ask God to expose that and to replace that lie that says you have to perform with the truth that says it is finished. So that you can walk in joy and freedom and victory over sin because of what Jesus has done for you. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that uh, you are inconceivably good to us. That your son stood condemned in our place so that we could be the righteousness of God. And that when he cries out, it is finished, that that is a truth without question, that it is finished, that the work of redemption was completed, that we can rest and trust in it, that we are beloved children of yours that we can seek you and receive mercy, that we can pray to you with confidence, that you have cleansed us from guilt and shame and sin. Father, I pray that we would not only rejoice and delight in that in our own hearts, but that you would move in us in such a way that we would have a desire to share the finished work of Jesus with others so that for them it might be finished as well and they might rejoice in your presence and experience that cleansing, that joyous forgiveness, and the mercy that you offer. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.